I'm just going to go ahead and start talking. Here we go. I have two regrets from high school. <laughs> this is not the beginning of a punchline. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, maybe more. There's two that I can say out loud. Uh, one, one of those is that I didn't play soccer. Holler to uh, all the soccer peeps in the house. Um, yeah, I, I sort of, where we came from in Lakeland, it was a big, like Central Florida's big soccer country. And, uh, and it sounds like that culture is also growing uh, around here as well. But when we were there, it was, um, it was very much sort of what you ate, drank, and slept. Uh, and so our kids were involved with that. I coached, and looking back, I was like, man, that would have been a lot of fun. The, Lord, the other thing uh, is I was not involved in drama, and I always wish I would have. Any drama? Drama folks in here? Yes. Listen, you guys are so cool. And uh, I was just too, uh, too self-conscious and full of myself to enjoy the, the goodness of putting yourself out there like that. So, but what I grew up doing is uh, some more solitary types of sports. Uh, so you may have heard me say this before, but uh, from the age of 12 or 7 to the age of 12-ish, uh, I was in competitive bowling. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just go ahead and let that sit on you for a minute. Just think about eight-year-old me. Like 70 pounds, slinging a 15-pound bowling ball down the lanes. Sometimes me going with it. Uh, and in high school, I ran cross country, right? There's all very, very much things that it was me against me. And I've always had that sort of internal drive for like me, I want to push myself to the next level, the next thing, the next whatever. That means two things. That means I get all the glory when it goes really well. But that also means that I'm under a considerable amount of pressure always because if it's to be, it's up to me. And all of that weight is only on my shoulders. And both of, the, both of my regrets from high school that I can say out loud... Uh, were things that were team experiences, things that got me around other people kind of moving towards a common goal. And that very much connects to what we're talking about today because in some ways, those types of things, those team things that you're involved with now are preparing you for life in this. Because this church thing is a team sport much more than it is a solitary sport. It's a lot more like soccer than it is like bowling. And what we're dropping into today is the church has been going gangbusters. And week after week after week, it's been like success after success after success. And they grew and people came to know Jesus and the church was doing awesome and everything was great. And then it's possible that there could be anywhere between 5, 10, maybe 15,000 people in this church at this point. So the church of Jerusalem was a mega church. And megachurches and lots of people, when you're dealing with that, they have mega problems. And every church, though, has all kinds of problems. Ours is no exception. So what we're going to see today is how does this church that has grown, in essence, too big for its organizational structure, how do the apostles answer that question? And then what does that have to tell us both about our personal lives and about our life together as a church? So... Catherine Singleton. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Do you need this? Right there. 
Mm-hmm. One through seven. All right. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Who can read that passage and not get to Timon and think of Pumbaa? If you didn't, you're welcome. Church struggle is, is for real, though. Like, if we were only left with Acts 2 at the very end and Acts 4 at the very end to describe in our minds and create a mental picture of this is what, we, this is what church life should be. So what do we hear in Acts 2 and Acts 4? And they had everything in common, and they lived together in brotherly love at all times, and they shared everything they had, and there were no needs among them. And and, uh, this expectation begins to grow in us that, yeah, 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 that's what the church is. That's what it's supposed to be. And then when we come across churches that aren't doing that and have faults and have foibles and have ways that they miss it or maybe even ways that they've missed us over the years— then we can go, well, that's not the true church. That's not like, they're, they're not really doing it. Is that true? Because when you take Acts 2, Acts 4, and then Acts 6 together as a fully orbed picture, you begin to see, no, even the apostles missed it. Even the apostles dropped a ball here and were not able to fulfill this task and Literal people were going hungry because of it. So when we encounter those things in our own church and in our own life, instead of meeting those as, oh, well, this, this is wrong. We got to go find somewhere where it's right. Instead, to consider how does this both normalize our experience of life together as a church and call us into a pattern of health? What does healthy church look like? It doesn't look like perfectionism but it also doesn't look like a few people up on top doing everything for everybody. So uh, we're going to hit these two points real quick this morning and then come to the table. The first, the struggle is real. Uh, and the second, a pattern for health. Because if, if this church was somewhere in the neighborhood of 5, 10, 15,000 people strong in Jerusalem, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of moving parts to keep that thing all moving in the, the right direction and in the same direction. Now, if you remember back to Acts 1, Jesus paints this picture of the gospel is going to go out in this way. It's going to go out in Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, from Samaria to the ends of the earth, and then 
all we're doing as we walk through Acts together is we're watching that happen, go to the next rung out, the next rung out. So where we are today is the gospel has been going out like crazy to Jerusalem, particularly the Jews in Jerusalem. Today, it goes to the next outer rung, still in Jerusalem, but to now a different ethnicity of Jew. Because you see in the text, you've got two groups going on here. You've got the Hellenistic Jews, and you've got the Hebraic Jews. And those, those two groups were distinct, even had different synagogues that they worshipped at because of some of these distinctions. Primarily, the distinction is linguistic. Their, their languages, the Hebraic Jews spoke Hebrew, the Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek. In addition to that, the Hebraic Jews were sort of enculturated in the Jewish tradition. They had generations and generations of history in and around Jerusalem that had formed their family and cultural identity. The Hellenistic Jews had moved into town from Greek-speaking places. Now, they were no less sort of religiously fervous Fervorous? <laughs> I don't know what that word is. Fervent. That's the word. Thank you. Uh, they were no less religious than any other group that was there worshiping at the temple. They had moved to be closer to the temple, to be closer to the religious tradition that they so loved and the Yahweh, the God that they so loved. But they were distinct. They spoke a different language. They, had, they were bringing all of their Greek culture into and their tradition and their family history into their church. And so there were these, these two very, fairly distinct groups. In addition to that, it's possible that, or not it's possible, but part of the reason that there may have been a miss here is because all 12 apostles were Hebraic Jews. All 12 apostles were, had that long lineage and long history in, in and around Jerusalem. And so it's possible that just the language barrier and the distance that some of those things can create they just missed it. They dropped the ball. They were not caring for these widows who in Acts 2 and Acts 4 said that they had set up this thing to be able to care for. I worked at a, a church two churches ago, three churches ago, um, just out of uh, college. I worked at this church in the high school ministry as an intern. Big old church. And I, I had the idea going into that, I mean, there were, I'm not even sure how many members there were, but the sanctuary sat 2,500 probably, and there were three services, so you can kind of do the math there. Lots of people. Uh, and I thought, I'm going to go in here, and man, what an opportunity that I have. I'm just cutting my teeth in ministry, and I'm going to get discipled by this mega church pastor who's doing such amazing work for the kingdom and for our denomination, and I was so excited that that was going to be my story. And so I walk in and I have this whole thing planned in my head. I'm going to walk up to Randy, different Randy, walk up to Randy's office. I'm going to stick out my hand and I'm going to say, hi, my name's Jeremy and I work for the youth department now and can we go to lunch? And then before I did that, I had a couple conversations with our youth staff and I sort of told them about my plan and the excitement that I'd had to be discipled by the senior pastor and asked them the same questions like, how, how many times have you had lunch with Randy? And they were like, looked at me sideways and were like, what are you talking about? I've never, even, I've never even talked to Randy. And immediately I thought, oh no, what kind of situation have I gotten myself into? I can't believe that the senior pastor of this church is not actively discipling everyone under his care. That's his job. Is it? Come to find out, 
Randy had appointed this wonderful youth pastor named Jeff Summers, who was my boss. And Jeff walked with me in that first year being brand new to faith almost and brand new to ministry. And he walked with me through that time. And then Sarah and I got married and then he walked, he and his wife both walked with us through our first year, year and a half of marriage before we moved to Central Florida. Had Randy done something wrong? No. Randy discipled Jeff. Jeff discipled me. I discipled high schoolers. That's the pattern that Acts 6 is beginning. That's, that's the idea that this is beginning to build up in our lives and in our minds. And this is something that the other scriptures that we'll get to in a minute corroborate. So the issue, though, for us, if we peel back and not only think about sort of church life, but let's just think about life life for a minute. What are the things, what are the ways that we will try to hold on to too much? What are the ways where we will say, well, I'm at the top of the pyramid in whatever that pyramid is. I'm the top of the pyramid in my family. I'm the top of the pyramid at my workplace. I'm the top of the pyramid at whatever uh, different roles and responsibilities that I have in church or in life or at F3 or wherever that is. The question is, am I, what are the parts and places where I may be either over-functioning or I may be under-functioning? Because there was something in the wisdom of the apostles here when you see how they went about making this decision. A complaint comes to them. Can you imagine a complaint in church? I can't imagine. (laughs) A complaint comes to them, and here's what I do with complaints. What do you do? I go, how dare they complain? Are they not thankful for all that they have? Those widows, I'm sure that they could have just figured it out. Why do they got to wait for us to figure it out for them? And instead they have both the humility and the courage to open up and say, hey, look what it says they did. It says they gathered other, the 12 gathered the rest of the disciples and said, hey, let's have a forum and like figure this thing out. These widows matter. This, what God's doing in this group of five, 10, 15,000 people matters. Let's figure this out together. We, we've missed something and we want to be humble enough to say, how do we fix it? There's a humility that comes as we are able to embrace our limits that we don't naturally love doing. Because naturally, we don't tend to want to open our hands to other people. We don't tend to want to open our hands to trust someone else with the job that we know that we could do and do it better. And there's deep layers of control, perfectionism, distrust that are under, undergirding that and inside of us. Uh, if you've read Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I know that has been sort of a, uh, a resource that we've used over the course of time around here. He says this, he says, you cannot be an emotionally healthy person and not embrace the gift, notice the word gift, embrace the gift of limits. You cannot be emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, even physically healthy, without embracing the gift of limits. Because even physically, we are not made to do everything. We have physical limitations placed on us by the God who created us. We are only able to run at such a clip for such amount of time before we burn out. We are only able to stay awake so long before our brains are so fried we can't even function. I figured that out in college. 
There's only so often that we can either go without eating or drinking water before we literally just shrivel up and die. And so there are natural limitations where God is speaking to us through even our physicality to say, you are not limitless. You can't do everything. It's not possible. And so to embrace the gift of our limits just goes so much against the DNA inside of us and who we are. You remember the Bradley Cooper movie, Limitless, by the same name? It's under the premise of you've got 15 to 20% of your brain that you actually use. And I think this is the science is sort of being debunked right now. But the idea is 15% of your brain that you're actually using, you take a pill, and then all of a sudden you've got 100% brain capacity. And Bradley Cooper takes it, and all of a sudden, his life goes from zero to hero in like a day. And he's able to analyze, he's able to play the stock market, he's able to maintain all these relationships, and he's able to wheel and deal, and just all of a sudden, his life turns around for the good. For a minute. That's about how long it lasted. Because the majority of the movie is not him living this greatly successful life, it's his life imploding. The same is true of us. His relationships break. His health breaks. There's, I mean, he ends up murdering somebody. There's deceit. There's lies. There's all of these things. Everything just falls by the wayside. His life blows up. And that's a big sort of analogy for a small reality. The same thing is very true of us. If we try to live for too long without embracing our limits, our life will blow up. And God is gracious and kind to do that. Then... What is it? What is it that motivates us? If we can't just, well, yeah, then just embrace your limits and like go, you know, go back out there and do it. Why can't we just do that? Maybe a number of reasons. Here's one. Inside of us, there are all these little chirpy voices. And those chirpy voices may be coming from our upbringing, from our own personal expectations, from our sin nature, Uh, from Satan himself even, and they chirp in our ears and they say, you're not good enough. You can't handle this life. You don't have what it takes. You don't matter. You don't bring anything to the table. You aren't good at anything. And they chirp and they chirp and they chirp from our ears down into our hearts. And then that motivates us to internally go one of two ways. We can either then anxiously overdo it to say, no, quiet voices, I can do it. I can do this and that and this and that and get tons of applause along the way. And oh, it just feeds me so much. And then that creates this toxic cycle that we just continue to feed off of the approval of others. And it feels so good until it blows up. Or it may send you the opposite direction and say, no, you're right. You're right, I am worth nothing. I do have nothing to offer. There really is nothing that I bring to the table, and so I'm going to bring nothing. And so whether that sort of causes you to over-function or under-function, those voices are real. They chirp inside of me all the time. Why are those voices so loud? Where does that come from? There's multiple ways to answer that question, but predominantly it's because we're functionally atheists. We live much of our life as if God actually isn't real. We live most of our life as if if it's to be, 
It's up to me. That there is no help, that there is no power, uh, that there is no action or activity in my life if I am not the momentum creator. I bring that before you today. In taking on this new role, there is a part of me that's like, all right, like, let's get to it. Let's go. And yet there's something in me and there's something in all of us that can be so toxic in that that we have to be really careful about. Because whether it's anxious frenzy or fearful retreat, we can take those to some really bad places. How then do the apostles do it? How do they, how do, they essentially function with healthy boundaries here to use some of our like contemporary lingo. How, how do they do that? If you remember back a couple of chapters in Acts 4, verse 13, it says this. The crowd saw that the apostles were bold and they recognized what? They'd been with Jesus. Being with Jesus had done at least two things inside of them. The first thing that being with Jesus did for them is it proved to them that they are not him. When they watched him heal, when they watched him love, when they watched him discern, there's this beautiful place in the Gospels where Jesus is deciding, do I heal a woman who's been bleeding for her whole life or do I care for and raise back from the dead a daughter who's dying or keep her from dying? And in that moment, one of those feels urgent and one of them doesn't. Listen, you've had this medical condition forever. There's a girl who's dying. And then there's a high-level officer in the military who's like, my daughter's dying. Will you come and help me now, Jesus? And yet Jesus somehow knows in his wisdom and discernment to pick the important over the urgent. And there's a wisdom that he discerns his entire life with and then a power that he lives that out that they walked alongside him and were just constantly marveling and also constantly confused and perplexed by what he was doing. But being with Jesus helped them to realize I am not him and I cannot be him. And being with Jesus does the same thing for us. I am not him. I am not Lord of the universe, let alone Lord of my household. I'm not. I can't be. That's too much for me. Uh, My hands are too small for that awesome responsibility. The other thing that being with Jesus does is he both is completely limitless and he constrains himself. Because that's what love does. True love limits itself. You can't truly love God and love every neighbor all the time. But you can sure love those people that God has placed right in front of you. And so... Jesus constrains himself. His love constrains himself. And even so, he's still so limitless that he constrains himself and dies for his entire church. We can't do that much for everybody. But we can sure live under the one who has done that for us. Because he takes our functional atheism. He takes our limitless uh, predeterminations about our own life and what we are able to do. He takes our unwieldy expectations and applause of ourselves for how great of a job we're doing at this life, or he takes our brokenness and our broken hands and our broken life where we have tried and tried and tried and finally given up. 
And in either of those categories, he takes us by the hand and draws us near as he constrains himself to look you in the eye with a deep love that has nothing to do with what you have done or not done and has everything to do with his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection. If you remember back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry, there's a moment where the spirit comes down and Jesus receives baptism from the, from the Father through the Holy Spirit. And do you remember the words that are said over him? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The beauty of the gospel is you now in your chair as you sit, whether you've done a lot for him or you've done absolutely nothing, whether you've had a successful week or whether you've had a totally atrocious one, whether you've kept all the rules or kept none of them, you can sit under his pleasure this morning. You are my beloved child and you I'm well pleased. And all who are in Christ, that is spoken over you today. So then that creates a new kind of rest. That creates a new kind of humility to bring down our limitless preconceptions of ourselves. And it also brings a courage that fills our lungs and says, I can't do everything, but God's made me for a couple of things. And I'm going to, as much breath in my lungs and strength in my hands as he's given me, I'm going to go hard towards those things. So I had a, um, I had a, a, a friend in ministry who totally changed the way that I thought about ministry at the same church that I was just talking about earlier. And he, he goes, I was talking one day, it was probably a year in to being in ministry, and, um, and I was just lamenting, like, we probably have a thousand high schoolers running around. How in the world am I supposed to meet with all of them and, like, care for all of them? And how am I supposed to meet all of them where they're at and take them to lunch and create programs that meet them where, you know, where they are and grow them up in Jesus? And he looks at me and goes, equip the saints, baby. <laughs> I had an entire training at the, the former church I was at that was called ETSB training. Equip the Saints baby training. And he's, what he's calling, what he was calling me to and what has become honestly like a life verse in ministry for me is Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. I think we may even have it on the screen. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to what? To do all the works of ministry and be super awesome and get applauded for it? Nope. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Everyone in this room today who is in Christ, you're a saint, you're set apart, you're equipped and gifted by the Holy Spirit to do certain things that only you can do in only your particular sphere that no one else can. What is that for you? What are those spheres of influence that you have? Where has God called you to? Because he hasn't called you to everywhere. And the more that we try to fit in everywhere and everything, the more that we'll dilute what he's actually called us to. And so to answer the question, what is God calling me to? You can begin to ask things like, what am I good at? Like, what has he made me for? What is, what is my passion? What is even the life circumstance that I'm in right now? And how does that even shape what I can do with my time faithfully and still care for all of my responsibilities that I have? 
Because you see in verse 3, it takes following the Spirit, solid character, seeking collective wisdom, and trusted leadership to help figure some of these things out. So it's still a community project. And to be clear, I'm not just talking about serving in Kidtown. And I'm not just talking about playing in the band. I'm talking about your entire life is what is a life that he has equipped only you to live and love him and love other people in a particular way. What is that for you? And maybe the corollary question is, what are you right now saying no to? Where are you creating those limits in your own life so that you can get after what you've really been made to do? Because you're going to have to say no to some good things to say yes to the best things for you. So with all of that, look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. When we collectively begin to live into this reality that we are not everything, but we are one thing, and that one thing is something that God can use. When we live into those realities and then live together in that, in the body of Christ, magic begins to happen. People come to faith. The church grows in health. Leadership, submission, mutually working together to create a healthy culture. That's what we're after. That's what we're after here not trying to be everything to everybody. Even the structure of Midtown does that. That the goal is not one person on the very top of the pinnacle who's feeding down everything else. This is organic, bottom-up type of leadership. And that starts with us in this room. So again, it's one thing to say this. Yeah, these are some great thoughts, great ideas. The truth is, though, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything in you, you're just going to keep functioning the same ways. We're going to walk out and great ideas don't, don't change your life. Our hearts must be changed. They must be softened. They must be released from the hard grip that they have over our lives. So as we come to the table, what voices of condemnation are loud over you today? What are, what are the places where you're hearing you're not enough? You can't do it. You don't have what it takes. And how is that either causing you to over or under function and secondly, how might Jesus be calling you to constrain yourself to not do everything, but in the same way that he has constrained himself to love you? Who are you constraining yourself, limiting yourself, saying, I can't do everything, but I'm going to care for this? Uh, in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word over you. And what we're going to do as we take this bread and this cup here in a minute, is listen to Jesus as he speaks this better word over us. He speaks this word of, well done, good and faithful servant. Because every one of us in Christ, whether you've done everything right in your life or done absolutely nothing, nothing right in your life, when you get to see Jesus, he will look at you and he will say, well done. Because the merit and righteousness of Jesus is yours. Well done. And because of that, bring that reality and drag it into today. And if that well done is what we're going to get then, then start to live right now like well done is already over you. So the question first to us this morning is, have you come to a place where your own limits have become increasingly burdensome and you have opened your hands to Jesus? Have you come to that place where you've said, I can't hold this anymore. 
I can't hold the responsibilities of my life. I can't hold this guilt. I can't hold my shame. I can't hold this, this burden of living this certain way. I think I have to live a certain way so that you'll be pleased with me. No. Have you come to a place where you've said, Jesus, you've got to take this. I can't hold this life. It's too heavy. And if you've come to that place today, then please come up here and eat and drink deeply of his well done over you. And if you haven't, let this be today. Let the weight of whatever you may be, God sovereignly may be walking you into this room today with heavy burdens, heavier than you can bear. And today is the day, whether believer, unbeliever, somewhere in the middle, trying to figure it all out, this is the day for all of us to lay those burdens back down and let him pick them up. Secondly, this is a community meal. This is a team sport. And so collectively, uh, do, other, do you have other believers in your life that know and love you and are helping to affirm the places where you are gifted and calling you out of all your craziness of trying to do too much or too little? Are you living in Christian community? And if those two things are true of you, please come and eat and drink deeply. Um, so the way we're going to do that is you, um, you'll have an opportunity to come forth to kneel at these kneelers. Take a moment. Take a deep breath. Before you come to him, to just settle your spirit in such a way that he can speak to you. Uh, and then would he speak in powerful ways through this cup and through this bread? Uh, and then after you take... You'll head back to your seats. If you need gluten-free, it's over this direction. If you need prayer, cross your arms, uh, and someone will come around and pray for you. Because on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There is a new way to be rightly related to me in Christ. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. So, Father, pry our hands off of our life. Uh, you're good even in the stressful circumstances and things that we may be carrying into this room today. You've even done that for a reason. You've let us feel those burdens. You've let us feel those, those places of conviction uh, or guilt or longing or just stress. And you're, you're using all of those things to call us to open our hands to you and to lay our lives down to you and to trust you to pick up the heavy load of our life to pick up our finances, to pick up raising our children, uh, to pick up our friendships, to, to pick up our jobs and all of the things that we spend our time doing, they're too heavy. Take them. Help. Do what we can't do and draw us as you call us to abide in you. Draw us all along the way through this life uh, with you at our side or honestly with us at your side. Uh, so be near, speak to your people now words of well done in Christ, we pray. Amen.